Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, going solo today. No co-host, producer, engineer, call screener, extraordinaire. More on that a little later. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909. If you want to call in and speak to me today, if you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website, and that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. You can also call in on our call-in line that I previously gave you and listen to the show via that method if that's your only means. Then by all means, do so. So we have a solemn recap today. Last week we did a uh, surprise true Hollywood story of our co-host, Chris Morales, if you recall, a few months ago, uh, probably prior to the beginning of the year, we did, uh, he did uh, myself, and uh, I returned the favor and did his last week, where we would ask some questions and interview him and get a little bit of his background and um, what he brings to the table and from where it comes. And uh, part of that, on a large part of his story, um, is that, you know, addiction, his his, his parents, well, he doesn't know who his father is, but his mother um, has struggled with addiction uh, throughout her life, uh, still current to this day, and he recounted how when he was about two or three years old, um, his mother was in danger of losing him to the system. They were going to remove him from the home because his mother was uh, incapable of caring for him, and his grandparents stepped in um, and 
said what most grandparents would say that uh, not not while I'm alive will my child enter my grandchild into the system we will raise him and that they did and um for him they became his mother and father you know we have been or he has been providing updates uh throughout the last couple of months um in regards to his grandmother who he affectionately calls Nana um she suffered an injury while they were on, a fall an injury while they were on vacation um a month or so ago in in Utah and eventually had to be flown back home to uh rehabilitate at local Kaiser Hospital and, and eventually made it back home, you know, made enough progress, made it back home, 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 and um, then had a little setback and had to go back in the hospital. Um, and they determined she had some blood clots, which kind of were predictable because she'd spent a lot of time, you know, in the hospital bed lying in one position and so on and so forth. Um and, and was making recovery from that. In fact, his last report um, last week, gave, giving us a sharing as caring update, was that she was uh, improving and doing well. Well, unfortunately, the next day, Wednesday, last week, last Wednesday, um, his grandmother passed away. And so it is with that, um, we have to extend our condolences to our uh, dear co-host, his wife, and um, his family, um, his grandpa, um, as their, his, to him, it's his mom. She's the one who raised him, um, has uh, transitioned um, over to the next stage of her spiritual existence. And um, so they're in mourning right now. And they'll continue to be in mourning until such time as... um, they deem necessary. Um, so I cannot tell you when he will return um, to his post. And in times like these, uh, there is there is no timeline. Um, he'll determine when the time is, is right for him to return. Um, I thought it would be appropriate. Um, I actually had a different show planned uh, that we were going to do obviously. Um, and with this news, I thought I would move up a show that was kind of in the pipeline, um, a topic that we were going to touch on, um, dealing with loss and grief while in recovery. And I did not want to do this, even though we were going to do this sometime down the line, but we had no idea that the events of a couple of months ago were going to transpire leading to um, um, his Nana's eventual passing last week. And so I think it's more appropriate that he's not here um, while I'm doing the show on this particular topic. And let, let's start it off with the obvious statement that people deal with loss and grief Period. Whether they're in recovery or not in recovery, it's everybody deals with it at some point. Um, we're obviously partial to the recovery community uh, because that's where we work. 
That's where our heart lies. And oftentimes, people who are actively in the addiction life, and now I shortcut that by just saying in the life, and you'll know it, so you'll know what I mean when I say that. People who are in the life, active in the life, when they experience loss, even loss that's close to them, an immediate family member, a parent, grandparent, etc., um, the process of medicating usually just increases. Um, it might increase just for that that time period and then go back to whatever it is that they were using um, prior to. But it's just it becomes just another thing to escape and medicate our feelings so that we don't have to deal with it. And then thankfully, if a person makes it into a treatment setting and the modality matters not, whether they're in a residential setting, an outpatient setting, it's just a treatment setting, period. Um, It offers an opportunity, and it's hoped that the opportunity is presented in a safe environment, a trusting environment, so that the person can take that opportunity to start the process of dealing with that loss. And then sometimes people, while they're in the process of engaging in recovery, in treatment, in the middle of treatment, experience loss. They lose grandparents, other family members, um, through natural, you know, natural passing on, old age, or sometimes we've had through, you know, violent, violent means, you know, on the streets. Uh, we've had it all from A to Z. And so you have to deal with current loss also. And, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that there is no better place to be um, as an addict who is trying to engage in the recovery process and to be in the treatment setting that's safe and trusting, um, that provides a place where I can deal with this loss and, and grief and mourn, um, mourn the loss. I think this is the one area, if I was to just come think off the top of my head, that starting uh, from academia in uh, the substance abuse counseling field, and I presume, I'm not 100% sure, I'll ask my colleagues, um, I didn't get a chance to ask them prior to the show, um, those who are in the professionals, uh, profession, uh, professional areas, um, licensed professionals, whether or not this is an area of study that a lot of time is spent on, uh, I presume not. Um, similar to those who are in the substance abuse counseling field, I don't think it's an area that they spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of time on, um, and I wouldn't bother to surmise as to why or why why they don't. Um, but it is a part of the life process. So we can't, we won't, we won't escape it. Let me change that from can't. We won't escape it. We have to face it. We have to deal with it. 
and we have to provide as providers um, the environment so that the the client can take advantage of the opportunity of dealing with it in this environment. Now, what's the advantage of this the treatment setting environment? Well, if you if if you've been to funerals, memorial services, um, and whatever other means from other cultures, religious rituals, etc., that um, the passing of someone is recognized and mourned, uh, it appears the one common denominator is the family and the support of the family and the role that the family plays in the healing process. And when I use the word family, I'm going to, I mean it loosely. Not widely loosely, but just a little loosely. Because I want to leave enough room in there to include those friends and loved ones that are like family, may may not be blood family, but they are like family, um, and who also play a role, and sometimes an even more important role than a blood family member. And and that's why in the treatment setting, uh, the family, which is way more often than not, we rarely get siblings uh, or or closely related, uh, blood-related folks in treatment at the same time. Uh, but the, the family members, our brothers and sisters that are in treatment together um, in the treatment community, their role is very important sometimes because they're not blood relatives. They can play a role that the blood relatives sometimes can't play. Because, as I'm sure all of us can attest, to experiencing, experiencing those of us who are old enough um, and have, you know, attended funerals and memorials and things, wakes and things of that nature, uh, these times can bring out the best and the worst in people. And both are understood. And so there's a role for some of us in dealing with all aspects of emotion and, and, and behavior that will present its that presents itself during these times. I'm certain just from my own personal experience in terms of the treatment setting that as a clinical practice we don't spend a tremendous amount of time on this subject. Um, I think it's more reserved for the intimate setting of the, the client-counselor relationship, the client-to-client-pair relationship. Um, it's rare that in the assessment process, the treatment planning process, that a client um, who may have lost 
a a loss or multiple losses uh, in their um, background that they have not addressed, not dealt with, reveal that in the the early goings of the treatment process. These things usually come out later on, and usually they're revealed through either through to peers or to a counselor during a one-on-one session, things of that nature. And, and, and then the process of, depending on, you know, what they've revealed and, and, and where that stands, the process of addressing it can begin. And I don't think it can be understated that it is not only my hope, it should be our hope as providers that we strive to have the, the the environment that will allow people to feel that they can bring those things forward. Because I tell clients all the time, you know, once you walk through the doors, the treatment doors, any treatment door, not just ours, any, once you walk through those doors and the time comes, for you to walk out of those doors for the last time as you transition to the next phase of your life, the next phase of your recovery process, make sure that you have brought to the forefront all of the things, all of the issues that need to be addressed. Leave no stone unturned. Take advantage of the environment. And so... We do have clients who, you know, have experienced loss and, you know, because they were using, did not get an opportunity to feel it, grieve, mourn, and we would want that process to begin, if not them experience it and can and, and at least get a decent ways through it. While while they're in the treatment setting, because then we can use the support of the other family members, their peers, to act as uh, stand-ins, if you will, for the blood family in supporting them. One of the most important choices we have to make as counselors, providers, is once we know that someone has experienced a loss, whether it's past or whether it's current while they're in treatment, one of the most important choices that we have to make is who's going to support them. Who's going to be the person that we ask to be there? Because more often than not, and and this is just human nature, no one is really an expert except for those, I would have to say those who, you know, who are of, of an age that they have dealt with death numerous times and kind of know what to do, what to say, what not to say. It's, you know, at, at what times to say what they should say. That only comes from experience. If you've never, if you've never 
either a experienced it in your own life, uh, in your own you know uh, your circle of people that you know and have never experienced it closely. Um, how, how would you know? And so the right thing to do in terms of when you're looking for someone to support that client is asking them, who would you like to sit with you while you go through this? And more often than not, they'll tell you. And, and, you know, they'll, it, and they'll reveal through their choice someone that they're close to or someone that they're, they're, they've bonded with, someone they're starting a friendship with. And that's the person that you would choose. So you don't choose blindly whoever you think, as a counselor, might be the best person for the role. It's who they want. Because the person that's in mourning, usually someone specific, and that's who they should get. And when they get that person, or when we find out who that person is, I, as a counselor, will orientate them as to what they should do. Now, this is an interesting part, because just using myself as an example, I'm no expert. I don't know what to say and what to do and so on and so forth. I haven't experienced 25 deaths where I kind of got the feel and know I'm not in the industry of uh, the funeral funeral industry and kind of know know these things. And so to me, the best orientation to give the person that's going to provide support would be to say, there's no wrong or right thing to say. So, and if you're not sure what to say, silence is golden. And more often than not, just your presence is all that's needed. Just your presence is all that's needed. And then the person who is seeking that support will sometimes let you know. Not literally let you know, but through them initiating conversation or them displaying... uh, some emotional mourning. And so you'll kind of figure it out as you go. And so that would be my only orientation because there's no book. Well, actually, I'm sure there's a book, but we don't have a book to give someone. And so I would only tell them what I would what I would do. And, you know, it's going to turn out okay. You know that's that's the vibe that 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 I that I that I would want to get across to the person because you know I'm sure the the person that's been chosen, you know, is kind of you know Larry. Um, you know, am I up for this? You know, can I deal with this also? Um, and 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 support the person during this time? Yeah, you can. You can. Because more often than not, it's just your physical presence of being there that's important. And then the person will kind of let you know what they need in various ways. And so in that way, 
in that manner of thinking, the family in the treatment setting, and again, it makes no difference if you're in an outpatient or inpatient setting, the, the family can provide that support. And it also allows the support to be spread out because there can be more than one person who the person is has a bond with, is establishing a rapport with, building a friendship with. And so is there anybody else that you would like to support you as you go through this? And so you may get two, three, or four different people that has, can get an opportunity to spend time. And this is good for the supporters as well. This is good to learn because you're going to experience death in your family. And so it's good practice to learn how to support somebody. And it's good for the person who's mourning to have different uh, different presences. Is that a word? I don't know. I just made it up if it isn't. Around them. Different vibes. Different auras. So it's not the same all the time. Because different people bring different things to the table. Someone may be a great listener, and the person wants to talk. Someone may be able to identify and would be and may be able to share, and the person wants to listen and learn hey how how you you you've experienced the same thing. How did you get through it and the person can and the supporter can recount that. Others can provide, are good at providing physical support. Hugs, reach out, arm arm arounds, providing physical connection. So everybody has their thing that they do. Everybody has their thing. Some offer words of wisdom. Some are good at offering silence. By the way, that one's at the top of the list. Remember I said silence is golden in times like this. Sometimes nothing needs to be said. Just your presence is good enough. You've heard a number of times over the over you know over a number of shows where people have called in and they've talked about now that they've gotten off drugs and are in treatment. They are overwhelmed by their what, what their feelings of you know which they have been medicating for years, and now all of a sudden that that I've stopped using, you know it's like everything is now coming back to life and it's like hitting me all at one time all all of these emotions, and included in that are those people who who, like I said earlier, have experienced loss while they were in the life and never got an opportunity to deal with it, never got an opportunity to mourn properly. And all of that stuff starts coming back. And we got to be aware because the, the instinct is one of two things in the treatment setting. 
run from it, and I mean that literally and figuratively. So the literal part is they actually, this is too much. I can't deal with it. I got I to gotta get out of here. And then the figurative part is don't talk about it. Keep it out of my mind. It'll go away. Well, we all know that that's not possible. That's not true. That's not the case. You can't ignore it. You can't escape it. You have to face it at some point. You can run, but you can't hide from those experiences and the feelings that come with them. So again, this is the advantage of the treatment setting. If we're aware that there is loss in the background that the person is avoiding dealing with, you know, sometimes we have to do a little excavation on, you know, in their best interest. Now, some might say, well, you know, what, you know, be careful now, you know, don't don't use a pin and prick a, uh, you know, the calm little uh, tiger there, and you know, make it roar up. Well, we can't be we can't be swayed by that 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 concern or that we can't have that fear. Our interest lies in making sure that the client faces this while they're in this environment or at least begin the process. And so sometimes the counselor is faced with a very difficult decision about, you know, and they call it, you know, picking at that scab, you know what I mean? And trying to get, you know, get that client to start kicking that around a little bit, kicking that can. And as as a counselor, you you can't have any any fear about what the, the the client may how the client may respond, and the client may respond in many different ways. They may get angry, pissed off at you, um, demand a new counselor. <laughs> you know many different things that they may want to do because you you you're you're opening up a wound that they do not want to open. Well, I would advise the the counselor we, we have if if we're aware of this information. We're aware that this client has loss in their background. Let's say, you know, a family member passed away, a parent, brother, you know, a sibling, whomever passed away. And we know, we know it has not been addressed, dealt with. Um, We have a responsibility to to poke and try and get the person to uh, face it. I don't... I would not feel okay with not attempting to initiate that process and allow this person to, you know, my hands are up in quotes, progress through treatment to the point of getting ready to, you know, transition to their next stage, knowing that this little uh, thing is sitting there and that, the the lack of dealing with this can send this person right back to our doors sometime down the road. 
So this cocoon here that we that you have of the treatment setting is very advantageous, and it be and, and it behooves us as providers to one make sure that we provide that safe and trusting environment where someone can take advantage of that if they want to, um, and if they don't want to and we're aware of it, then we have to prod in their best interest. They're not going to feel like it is, but it is in their best interest. The experts, my hands are up in quotes again, say that there are either four, five, or seven stages of mourning. I'm not... The only thing I can gather, really, is that the the, the one that say four kind of just condensed the same things from the seven into four. Um, I like the five, to be honest, personally. So I'm going to go with the, the five. And let's go over what the five um, stages are. And I'm going to single word them, and then we can talk about them separately. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. What do they mean when they say denial? This can't be happening to me. Anger. Why is this happening to me? Who's to blame for this? And oftentimes, you know, people are angry at God. How could you have let this happen? And so a person of faith, their faith comes into doubt in times like this. Bargaining. Please just make this make this go away. And is just make this all be a dream, and I promise I'll straighten my life out. Please. Depression. Understand depression can manifest itself, you know, physically. So you can see through what the person is doing or not doing that they might be in that state, or verbally. They can just simply tell you, you know, I'm just too sad to to do anything. I'm just, you know, I just can't. I don't. I don't feel like it. In acceptance, I'm at peace with what happened. I'm ready to move forward. Sometimes they even use the actual word. You know, I've 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 accepted what has transpired. I'm in a better place with it now. Things like that. All of these are normal human stages that we go through. Now, here's something to keep in mind. It's very important. Okay? These do not necessarily occur in the order that I just read them. Okay, there's no standard order of the stages of mourning. We may we may see the, the the way I listed them denial anger bargaining depression acceptance we may even even in reading them it you know kind of looks logical in terms of how a person might experience it 
but it doesn't necessarily go that way all the time. So don't get it in your mind, and we shouldn't get it in our mind that that's, you know, what's, you know, like we're checking off the checklist. Okay, they've gone through that, they've gone through that, they've gone through that. You know, someone can go through denial and go through anger, go through bargaining and swing back around to anger. Or at the very beginning, at the at at the moment of, you know, when this is all fresh and new, there's the appearance of acceptance in the beginning. But one thing is certain about the grieving process, the mourning process. As a human being, you can't escape you people think they can shortcut it, get around it, you know, find ways, try and find ways to avoid avoid it. You must go through all of it. Every single individual person is different when it comes to dealing with loss and grief. Everybody is different. But the one thing we all have in common is that we must all go through that process. We will all experience that process if, this is the catch, especially, this is the catch, especially for those in the recovery community, if we allow ourselves to experience it. Because often, the fear of experiencing it, we don't allow ourselves to experience it. We find ways, either through medicating, which happens if you're actively in the life, or other ways to avoid it. When the secret, because the person, as you know, as you're experiencing, you know, you know, the, the, the loss, the emotions behind it, et cetera. You know, we sometimes often think about, like, I can't wait till we get to, you know, that point in time when it doesn't feel as intense and as bad as it does right now. And so we look, you know, in our minds for this point in time in the future when it doesn't feel as, you know, like it does right now. And sometimes we don't realize, well, the secret to getting there is to allowing the a process of mourning to occur and not trying to short-circuit it, not trying to avoid it, delay it, circumvent it, allow it to naturally occur. What is grief? We said the word, right, grief. What is it? Well, we know it's a natural response to loss. It's like an emotional suffering. The more significant the loss, the more intense the grief will be. But here's something interesting. And 
this is even more important in the recovery community. Not that it doesn't occur outside, but I'm just saying. People grieve a lot of things. They experience a loss over a lot of things. I'm going to name some of them and tell me if they sound familiar. Divorce or a relationship breakup, that's big. I mean, how many questions do we get about relationships and having to make decisions about cutting somebody off, letting somebody go because I'm trying to get my act together and this person's still doing their dirt over there and I got to let them go. That person is going to grieve that relationship. Loss of health, losing a job, loss of financial stability, a miscarriage, retirement is a big one, death of a pet. I went through that last year. It's left 2014, yeah, last year. Loss of a cherished dream, the serious illness of a loved one, loss of a friendship. How often does that happen? And you go through this process and you don't recognize it as or even think of it as grieving. But you do go through that process. Same exact process you go through when you lose a friendship. And I'm not, by the way, friendship, okay? I'm talking about the, the, the friendship that has taken time to be cultivated over time and nourished and, you know, attention paid to. You know, that type of friendship. Not a fly by night friendship. Met you yesterday and we're friends. Not that. You know what I'm talking about. Selling the family home. I experienced that too. Not to, it wasn't selling a family home, but I'll, maybe if I have time, I'll explain it. But the more significant the loss, the more intense the grief. But it's important to point out that even subtle losses can lead to grief. So like some of the ones that we named, you know, like um, selling a home, graduating from college, changing jobs, retiring, things of that nature. We wouldn't look at those things as extreme loss, like the death of a loved one the death of a chair, you know, a pet, etc. Um, but those things also create their loss and they create grief. And people go through the, the processes, whether they're realizing it or not. And as we said, everyone grieves differently. There's no right or wrong way in terms of how it's expressed. And there's some myths, and we'll, we'll, we'll go over those. But it's a personal and highly individual thing. And, again, there's no right or wrong. How you actually grieve depends on, you know, your personality, coping style, your life experience, um, your faith, the nature of the loss. Everyone can acknowledge the grieving process takes time. Healing happens gradually. 
not something that can be uh, forced or sped up. Interestingly enough, it can be delayed. Isn't that interesting? You can delay it, but you can't speed it up. Well, how can you delay it? Well, people delay it all the time. When you medicate, when you medicate your feelings, you're delaying, you're delaying the inevitable. At some, I always tell clients, one or two things are going to happen. Either you, either you're going to die, and if you die, then let's say in theory, you've gotten away with not having to deal with the issues you have to deal with. But if that doesn't happen, okay, you're going to have to face these issues at some point. Just because you come into the treatment environment doesn't mean your problems, your issues, jump off your back and and land on our couch and stay there and then you get to not deal with them and go about your business and then leave and that they stay there. No, they jump right back on your back and follow you wherever you go. I always tell the clients, you follow you wherever you go. So whatever makes up you, whatever your problems, issues are, etc., it follows you wherever you go. You can't just drop them off here and then, you know, split and go about your business thinking that, oh, then we're left with your problems. No, they follow you until you turn around and face them head on. Same applies to dealing with loss. So, yes, people in the life, they can delay the process. I'll just keep drinking. I'll keep smoking. I'll keep doing whatever I'm doing. Just I don't want to feel that stuff. So, yeah, you can delay it. But when you're ready to deal, you can't speed it up. That's the catch. It's it's, it's got to have its its own natural process and you know in time you can't you're not in control of the clock. So let's just make sure we are clear on that on that one. Some. And we just say there's no timetable, right? You know, so some people start to feel better in a few weeks. Some people, it could take years, depending on what the loss is. Whatever it is, it's important for you to be patient and allow the process to naturally unfold. Now, there's some myths out there I want to cover. There's a couple of them that are interesting. By the way, the the expert, or let's say plural, because there are various experts that say four stages, and some say five, some say seven. I think they should all get together and decide what how many stages there are. Um, just FYI, the ones that say seven, shock, pain, anger, depression, Upward turn, reconstruction of life, and then acceptance and hope. So you see how the ones where it might be five or four, they kind of condensed a couple of the the ones that are named in the seven into one category to make it five. Because I think the one that's four just has, where is it? I have it somewhere. They have anger, I mean denial, anger, 
reconstruction and acceptance dash hope. So they're all similar. It just seems like they're condensed to me. One of the things as a counselor that I have to be aware of if I know I'm trying to help someone through that process is most people don't want to deal with it. And you might have to, you know, be okay with being the bad guy or gal. As we were talking about before, in terms of prodding, you know, like you're prodding a horse. The person doesn't want to, they don't want to deal with this stuff. So you got to prod them. The first time I dealt with uh, grief, 1986, when uh, my late friend Joe's mother passed away. And I remember I was you know, driving. He was outside cleaning his car. And I just got home from work about 4 o'clock in the afternoon from the airport. And I drove by. And now we knew his mother had been sick for some time. She had a terminal illness. And, you know, just pulled up, rolled the window down, and, you know, he he just matter-of-factly said, you know, his mother passed away today. And, um, of course, gave him condolences and whatnot. So I said, all right, let me go park, go upstairs and get changed. I went upstairs, and this wave of emotion just hit me, and for like 30 minutes I was just sitting there in my room crying. I didn't know what the hell was happening. And I went next door to my friend, Jackie, and you know, told him that um, Joe's mother had passed away. I said, and I was just over there next door. I can't believe I was crying for like 30 minutes. Said, what the hell was going on? He said, you were grieving. And, you know, as he talked some more, it kind of you know, started to make sense to me because as if you remember uh, when we talked about uh, the day we were doing the show in honor of Joe, his mother treated me like I was one of her sons. And and so, you know, her her passing was felt, you know, deep to me. So that was the first time for me personally that I experienced uh grief. Myths. The pain will go away faster if you if you ignore it. That's a myth. It ain't going anywhere. So you deal with it. Trying to ignore it, keeping it from surfacing, will only make it worse in the long run. Real healing can only take place if you face your grief and actively deal with it. Another myth. It's important to be strong in the face of loss. It's a myth. No one knows what they mean by strong anyway. You know, feeling sad, you know, you know, lonely, you know, frightened, whatever it is. These are all normal reactions to loss. Crying doesn't mean you're weak. You don't need to protect your family or friends, you know, by putting on a brave front. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite that's true. When the, When your family sees that you are able to grieve normally, it helps them 
They can see that you're showing your true feelings. Another myth. If you don't cry, it means you aren't sorry about the loss. Not true. Crying is a normal response to sadness, but it's not the only one. It's similar to when I was taught when we were talking about the initial interview. So many people were improperly trained thinking that, oh, we have to get someone to cry, and that's the only way they can prove that they were sincere. Well, no, the purpose of the interview was not to get someone to cry because there's some people are great actors and can cry on cue. If that was the only means of you know of, of of them proving to us that they were sincere, then we would be duped very often. We don't do that type of initial interview now anyway, but I'm just saying. The purpose was to establish, garner from the person sincerity. And sincerity can manifest itself in various, many different forms. It's up to me as the facilitator of the interview to be perceptive enough to determine that the person is being sincere. And they don't have to shed a tear to be sincere. So, remember we said everybody's different in the way that they, they mourn. And so... We can't look at someone and say, oh, because they're not shedding any tears or whatever that, you know, that they don't care. They just have different ways of, you know, of showing it. Everybody's different. I'm going to tell you a story about Jim Brown. Jim Brown, the football player. Most of you should know about him, except for my wife, because she doesn't uh, follow American football. Jim Brown... Probably one of the, the, if not the greatest football player of all time in the top three, if there's an argument, all right? So he was being interviewed one day, and Joe and I were actually watching this interview together. And he was talking about the loss of his best friend who died in a motorcycle accident. And he said he had never grieved before. He said even when his mother passed away. He didn't grieve in the sense that we're talking about today. He said that when, after his best friend passed away, he would find himself in the shower and just be crying, and he had no idea why, until he realized that it came, you know, he said it just hit him, that, wow, oh, I must be grieving, because I've never done this. And... What hit him even more and kind of confirmed to him that he was going through the grieving process was that he couldn't control it. It wasn't something he could, it would start, he could just, boom, turn it off. And that was the first time that he actually experienced grieving. And even during the interview, he grieved. So... We don't know what everyone's history is, and again, we mentioned how you know your personality, your life experience, a lot of things go into the pot, your your religious beliefs, etc, that contribute to how a person deals with loss and grief, how they mourn, the rituals that people go through. Cultural norms come into play. Ethnic norms come into play. 
national norms come into play. What they do in Jamaica is different from what they do in America. What they do in England is different from what they do in, in America. So there's different different things. Okay, last myth I'm going to talk about. They may mention a number of them, but I'm just going to – this the last one. Grief should last about a year. It's a terrible myth. There is no – you know, preconceived amount of time of how long grieving will last. Because remember the stages. Grieving is not only, you know, that the people think sometimes when we talk about grieving that it's just that part of when there is that deep, intense emotion of the loss. That's one aspect of the grieving process. So if you look at the stages, whether you want to go with the four or the seven, I went with the five in between, that's a process. And how long a person may stay in one particular stage or in which manner they may go through the stages, in which order they may go through the stages, nobody knows. And nobody knows how long they'll be in each stage. So it's a myth to say, hey, it's going to last about this amount of time. I know that's personally confirmed for me because after Joe passed away, I thought I had, you know, gone through the grieving process. It was maybe, I don't know, three or four years later that it, boom, hit me again. I had no idea what was happening. And I realized it was part of the process, the grieving process. Of course, I had to tell him to knock it off. I want to move forward already. Coming up on nine years. Our clients don't deal with their grief, I mean, their loss issues, while they have the luxury, and it is a luxury, of the treatment setting, well, we certainly have to ensure that we give them the tools to deal with it outside the cocoon of the treatment setting. They must learn that. Because we're all going to experience it no matter where we are. Our co-host has been mourning for the past week. We can't predict what stage of the process he is at. But it's certainly me as a counselor. We're going to touch base on that to the client. And if I know that there is a loss in the background that needs attention, and if I'm unsuccessful in prodding the initiation of the process, the grieving process, while you're in the cocoon, it's then my responsibility to make sure that 
I at least make sure you have an understanding of the tools that you will need to utilize to deal with this outside of the treatment setting. Because ultimately, my, my ultimate goal, if I can't get it to happen in the treatment setting, my ultimate goal has to be that you, you, you do face this and deal with this at some point soon because it's not going anywhere. And if, if, if it's evident that this particular loss is impacting your life, as is often the case for people who are in recovery, in treatment, coming out of the life, more often than not, the loss has been impactful to them. And so what we want to be able to do is we want you to deal with the loss so that it can it doesn't have, does not impact your life and then as a result, impact your behavior in a negative way. And then you can move forward in a positive way. That's what my ultimate goal would be. And I think that's how as providers we can help clients through the experience. But... We want to make sure that we do everything we can to 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 get it while while the client is in treatment. There's no better time than in the there's no better opportunity there's no better support that doesn't mean that the the uh the client's you know blood family is not supportive doesn't mean that but just going on experience. Okay. There are, there's issues out there in the blood family. And so the support that someone needs to deal with loss may not be what it should be at this moment in time. And so we can ha- we can make sure that that support is there. And so I want it. I want it to happen here. All right, we're going to take a break. Um, heavy topic. Uh, we probably haven't touched on everything we could touch on in, in regards to this topic. It's one of those topics that you can probably do a couple of shows on, but uh, I don't think I will because <laughs> it's such a heavy topic. Um, but I think we've uh, discussed enough to cover what's involved in dealing with loss and grief, what the process is, what the stages are, and what our goal should be, or goals, plural, should be as providers. And I'll close with this. I said it before, and I'll say it again. You can run, but you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. So it's better to face the loss and allow the natural process of grieving to take place. 
Our bodies were built for it, to handle it, if we just allow it to do what it was built to do. When we try and circumvent, when we try and avoid, when we try and do other stuff just to not feel it, okay, that's when we get into trouble. That's when we wonder why it's taking so long. Why is this still affecting me? You're not allowing the natural process to take place. And as Felix Arroyo once said from Daytop, you got to feel what you feel when you feel it. Okay. That's it on that subject. We're going to take a music break, come back at the top. We're a little bit past the top, but we'll come back and uh, get into some recovery support time. Um, callers, I see you. Thanks for uh, holding, and when we come back, we'll take some calls. Thank you. 
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Welcome back, folks, to Roach on Recovery, 646-564-9909. We're now in recovery time. We'll go to our first caller. So we got no call screener today, so we're going to do our usual deal. We'll ask for your first name and your hometown, first name only, then hometown. So let's go to our first caller. Welcome to the show. First name and hometown, please. Emmanuel from San Francisco. Emmanuel, Welcome. Thank you, thank you. Um, I actually liked what you were talking about. It's like almost every time I call and listen at the beginning, it's almost something I need to be reminded of and hear. Um, it's funny because I have to do seminars in the, in, in the treatment facility I'm in, and this was actually one of the seminars I picked, and it was one of my best ones I did that everybody could relate to um, with, the, with loss and grief, and I actually picked the five stages that, that you picked as well. That was my that was my favorite one to pick. Um, it just made more sense to me. Um uh-huh. I can I understand you touched everything that I talked about because it's funny I I've me and being in treatment now about eight months or so um, I've experienced multiple different kinds before I got to treatment my grandma passed away she fell down the stairs and broke her back and then first she was gonna be okay then she wasn't and then she passed away um, one of my friend another friend overdosed and then another friend just got killed and then now just recently one of my good friends and I call him a good friend because like you said it's not just an acquaintance someone that knows me very well because that all my friends here in treatment know me better than most of my family do because this is the real me that's I haven't that I've been hiding from for a long time, and mm-hmm. then he left as well because he just wasn't ready. Um, so I've experienced everything you were talking about, and it's just it, it's nice to hear because sometimes you know when you're going through it, you need to be reminded because um, it just it just helps and it it, it reminded me of my seminar. Um, so I definitely understand where you're coming from. Um, but my, my main question was, so I'm I'm pretty much done. I, I, I go to work almost every day, and then I come back. And my main my goal when I leave treatment is to actually work at the treatment facility that I complete from or graduate from. So I wanted your, your expertise or advice, the best way to go about that happening, like what some of the steps I should take for that to happen. Because... Um, me, me staying connected is a big part of of my my recovery. You know what I'm saying. And um, without the people that I help, it, you know, because me helping other people keeps me humble and it reminds me of where I've been and keeps me focused on where I'm trying to go. And um, I just need to stay in contact with that. And I, I just enjoy helping other people. There's no price tag or object that can compare to the to the joy I get from it. 
Well, let me say the most important aspect of my response. First, thank you for your your first comments on the uh, show topic. Working in the field of substance abuse treatment will not keep anybody clean and sober. Yeah. So there have been many that have fell by the wayside because they thought that by working in the field and, you know, staying connected, my hands Mm -hmm. are in quotes, that that would do it for them. And they found out that, no, that doesn't do it for you. See, working is separate from your other life. Yeah. Working is a part of your life. It's not your entire life. Mm-hmm. So when you're when you're done with your work, you you know you go home and you have your other life. Of course. And, and so I always say to someone who you know says, "Listen, I, this is the field that I feel like I would want to be in. I'd like to I'd like to do this type of work." Mm-hmm. I always make sure to say that to them that you have to be sure that this is something that you feel within your heart that you want to do. Not that you believe this is going to keep you clean and sober, because it's not. So yeah. with that out the way, with that out the way, my my infomercial on that out the way, um, to directly answer your question, to, in today's world, what you would need to do is uh, all of the local community colleges now offer, and I believe now even online, different people like to learn differently, Um mm-hmm the courses to take to obtain your certification, which is required in the state of California if you want to work in this field. Okay. Um, if you go full-time, you know, it can be done in two years. It's a two-year course. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are working and, and doing yeah, it. Yeah, so we have to do that. Longer, as you do them longer. But here's the, here's the thing to think about. Usually, once a person gets at least to the midway point, yeah. Once they get to the midway point and they are, you know, they can be determined to be serious about what their intent is in terms of wanting to complete the certification and work in this field, they're usually very hot commodity for providers. Okay. So if this is the field you want to get into, helping others, you know, get into recovery and, 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 and get through their substance abuse issues and you feel that in your heart, absolutely go for it. Yeah, because, you know, I, I completely agree with you said. I, you know, I know it won't keep me clean, but I don't know. There's just something, there's something about me helping somebody or understanding where somebody's coming from and helping them get through not even just a day, maybe just that moment in time where I don't know it just it, it it makes me feel good about myself you know what I'm saying sometimes I feel like cuz I never was happy with myself for a long time and me I never I, f- I forgot that I like to help people cuz all I did was take for so long and I don't know I just when I if I give somebody help or if I talk to somebody I I genuinely mean it with all my heart and it it, it just it keeps me keeps me sane honestly and 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 one important thing you said is that you you feel good mhm you know, after doing it, you 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 get something out of it, and that's important. So yeah, you're not going to get rich, but yeah. you will. 
you, you, you will experience a lot of uh, good feelings seeing other people, you know, the light bulb come on and seeing other people mm-hmm. turn their lives around. Yeah, and because you know, I, you know, I've been I've been using for like ten years, and um, you know, I, I I this was this is my very first program, and I've always avoided them at all costs. You know what I mean? And um, I'm glad I waited because I tried every other way my way, and it never worked out. And so you know, mm-hmm. my my life has completely changed. So the people here, the staff here, the counselors. The, even the residents as well have touched my life for better, and it's completely changed it. And you know, it, if if I could do that for somebody else, because it was happened to me, you know, so that'd be that's, that'd be awesome for me, honestly. Okay. Good stuff. Thank you, thank you. So, but I appreciate All your right. topic again as well, because um, yeah, I'm still going through stuff like that as well. So it's a good reminder. All right, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Have a good day. Okay, great call. All right, let's go to our next caller. Hi, your first name and hometown, please. I'm Sarah in Eureka, California. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so my question was um, if there was a strong correlation between mental health um, diagnosis and substance abuse in particular. I would not use the word correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does. We did a show a few months ago called The Chicken and the Egg, Mental Health and Substance Abuse. Mm, um, okay. And so that the reason I wouldn't use the word correlation is because there's been many times, many, many, many times, on initial assessment, someone comes into treatment and they appear to have the symptoms of, um, they obviously have a substance abuse problem, but they may appear to have symptoms of some mental health issues. Uh-huh. And then as they get time off of the drugs that they were using and time goes by and those symptoms dissipate, we realize that the symptoms were kind of as a result of their substance abuse. Uh-huh. However, if we don't see the symptoms dissipate, then we can say that, okay, there is a co-occurring issue going on here that they have not only a substance abuse problem, but they also have a mental health issue. But so on one side, sometimes substance abuse could what's the word? Give the appearance that mm. there's mental health things going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those so, so time has to play out a little bit to see if that's the case. But on the other side, sometimes it's crystal clear that there is a mental health issue present. Huh, and the substance abuse is just in, in addition. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So I wouldn't use the word correlate, though. Right, because what, what I'm finding, um, it's just a follow-up question, it's, what I'm finding is for me is that the substance abuse is what has been uh, addressed in the forefront, and with that removed at this current point in time, um, uh, as I am in a program, um, the mental health, is I'm finding that my substance abuse is is was a coping skill was my go-to coping skill for dealing with my mental health issues which were present before any sort of mm-hmm. um, substance use um, 20 years ago um, and so that's what I'm just and so I was just cause I know some people it's you know different obviously so it's an interesting mm-hmm. thing to hear that in regards okay. to that so thank you very much you're very welcome okay all right bye bye. 
you know, oftentimes it's, you know, so that's why when we do assessments, we assess both mental health and substance abuse. Um, but, you know, you get into that chicken or the egg discussion of, you know, is which one is, if both are present, was one first and then the other came because the person just started using as a way to cope with some of the symptoms they had or were they abusing drugs and as a result of that, they developed these other symptoms. And only time will kind of reveal, unless it's very, as I said, so apparent and significant on the mental health side that there's no doubt that it exists even if along in conjunction with a substance abuse issue. All right, enough of that. Let's go back to the phones. Welcome to the show. Can we have your first name in your hometown, please? Mary from San Francisco. Hi, Mary. Welcome. Hi. So um, I was just wondering if you think a co-ed program is kind of distracting for both women and men. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't so doesn't make them uh, doesn't doesn't make them what's the word uh, not effective but yeah they can be very distracting. <laughs> well yeah you know so do you think that it's a difference versus like an all women's or an all men's or a co-ed? What do you think is more? I, um, I, it depends, and and I know that sounds like a cop out, but let me explain. You know, people can benefit from being in a co-ed program. You know, mm-hmm. you can benefit from, so if you're a woman, you can benefit from being in a program with men, um, hearing from from men things that they've experienced and so on and so forth and seeing if it, 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 it touches anything that you've experienced in your life and your relationships and things of that nature um, and vice versa. Does that mm-hmm. always happen? Do those conversations, because it requires, you know, mature, responsible adults to have those conversations, does that always happen? No, and sometimes we determine that, you know what, this person or that person may do better in an all, you know, single-sex program because they either have, well, let's say a woman has, experience, you know, very bad experiences um, with males. She might have been physically abused or whatever, and there might be men in the program that look like the guy or act like the guy, you know what I'm saying? And that's very distracting. And so either a different program or all-female program might do better. There is one truth, though. There is one truth specifically to women, and that is that they do heal better together amongst themselves than they do, you know, in a co-ed setting. So that's why I always say if you're in a co-ed setting and you're in females that you guys got to bond together separately and create a bond amongst yourself in order to create that dynamic. But, but, but what if you, what if even as friendships you're, you're attracted to male friendships versus women friendships? When you say attracted to, what do you mean? I mean as far as becoming friends because... I mean, I'm not getting into detail, but the friendships I create are more with men than they are with women, even that's, friendships. That's that's fine. That's, there's many women that are like that, that get along better with men, and, and, and most of their friends, platonic friends, are men. This That's common. Yes, it is. That's and common. then, um, well, a lot of women have an, an addiction to sex, to sex, and that leads to men as well. 
so I see there being a huge distraction for some women. Uh yes, that's 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 true. Well, let me just <laughs> tell you a little brief a little brief thing I like to say, and that okay. is uh, especially in a co-ed program, you know, most people come in and we give them the same speech to everybody and everybody says, "Oh, I'm in, I'm involved. I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not here for that and all that stuff." But yeah. you know, uh, uh, a man comes in or a woman comes in to the facility <laughs> and everybody says, oh, you know, there's nobody here that, that, that looks good to me or whatever the case may be. But <laughs> you look what happens after four or five months being holed up in the same place with people. All of a sudden, they look like runway models. <laughs> yeah, you that's true. That is so true. I think that people, you get close to people and then you just, they grow on you or you just create relationships. Yes. So you have to learn to create responsible relationships. That's the key, responsible relationships. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to learn how to do here. Yeah. Okay, that's the the benefit of a co-ed program is you learn the opposite sexes, learn to create responsible friendships with each other. It doesn't have to always be sexual. About sex, yeah. Exactly. Okay? Yeah, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Good stuff. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's an old oldie but goodie from back in the day. I mean, I can't name one guy that has come into treatment. Oh, there's no one here that I'm interested in. I, you know, I, my, I'm involved outside. I got a girlfriend. Or I'm, even I'm married. I've heard that one, okay? And sometimes they were. And after four or five months, you know, the women that they thought didn't look good or vice versa, the the, the women who thought the men didn't look good, Four or five months later, next thing you know, they look like the best thing on earth. And that's just what happens when you're, you know, in a uh, a self-contained environment if you're in a residential treatment facility and, you know, and it's co-ed. But, you know, the single-sex treatment uh, environments have their own problems. Not necessarily with sex problems. I'm just saying they have their own issues because, you know, you're, you're kind of, my perspective, in my opinion, is the, the co-ed model has significant benefits in people learning how to be friends with the opposite sex in a responsible manner because you're going to have, if you're a man, you're going to have female friends. You have, you know, not every woman that you encounter is going. The relationship is going to be, you know, rooted in the sexual content. And the same with a woman. You're going to have male friends. And like she said, she's, you know, the type that seems to get along better for whatever reasons with men. And most of her friends are men or will be men, and that's common. So you have to learn to do that. Do it responsibly. And if you don't get it in a uh, same-sex program, then you'll have to learn, at, you know, outside. But you got to learn it. All right, back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name in your hometown, please? Hi, my name is David from San Francisco. Hey, David, welcome. Thank you. Uh, my question tonight is, is... Um, can somebody in recovery have a successful relationship with a person that that socially uses drugs and alcohol? Um, you said drugs and 
alcohol. Yeah, kind of recreationally, you know, nothing heavy, and they're functional still, which in my case, you know, would be difficult because I have I'm an addict. Right. Um. <clears throat> I'm going to separate out the alcohol from the drugs for this answer, okay? Okay. And I'm going to take the alcohol first. There are people who can drink socially or drink, Mm -hmm. I call it like event drinking. They drink at a wedding or New Year's or, you know, whatever, you know. And they handle it responsibly, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you are involved with them in in an intimate relationship, or what have you, um, their abilities have nothing to do with your inabilities. It's just important that you recognize what your inabilities or or abilities are, and that is, well, you know what? I'm in recovery, so I I I can't involve myself or partake of those things. And so if you know if the the lady that you're with and you're at an event is able to have a a drink of wine, but you don't. Happens all the time. Okay, and 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 still could have a good relationship. Right, but just remember, though, I'm just right now, I'm separating them out, drugs and alcohol. And by the way, there are many people who don't drink because they just don't like it. They don't drink alcohol. They just, you know, it's not because they're in recovery. They just don't drink. And And the other party does drink, so... Okay, so it's not just when it comes to alcohol or you know a recovery thing. I just want to point that out. Now, to the drugs, that's a different story, and mm-hmm. that's where it comes. That's where it comes to a personal decision of yours. Okay. Okay. And your recovery, your standards that you have set for what you will allow, what you will accept. Okay. We can have our opinions of that. Okay, we can say, you know what? I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I wouldn't allow that. Okay? And those would be our opinions. Okay? Okay. But we cannot set, another person cannot set what your moral standard is going to be. You have to do that. Okay, and being emotionally involved um, as a guy, I think it would kind of be, I want to say confusing, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Kind of like, Persuaded more so, or you know what I mean? If if your significant other, you know, uses regulation, hey. come on, you can do it one time. I do okay, and I go back to work and you know be responsible. And um, it, I guess where, it's David. That's where you would have to set your boundaries mm. and maintain them as far as where you are, what you where you know where you stand in regards to those things. Okay. So to me. That's a you know that's a that's a deep discussion that needs to be had if it's a you know someone you're you know involved with intimately, um, and you know this is something that they do, you're trying to do. Yeah. You guys are together, and so you have to have that discussion. You can't control what another person does. Yeah, like say you're already, like I say, really emotionally evolved. The relationship was going for a while, and it was kind of a hidden thing that just popped up. You know, well, I do this every now and then. Is it time to just be strong and stick to your boundaries and say, well, I can't accept that? 
you first have to determine what your what your standards are. So, for example, someone might say, "I, I'm not going to get involved with anyone who drinks or uses drugs." Period. End of story. And that's mm-hmm. their standard. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then they have then they have to be the ones to maintain and police their own standard. You might okay. say something different. Okay. Now, if it's someone that you are emotionally involved with or have been emotionally involved with, and it's something that has just come to the forefront in terms of something that they dabble in, then that's a conversation you need to have. And then you, okay. need, to, you need to, within yourself, determine, what are my boundaries? What are my, where are, what are my lines? And then you need to make them known. Okay. I, I understand are, that. And these are difficult discussions. They're, especially when emotions are involved, they are very difficult discussions. We cannot underestimate that at all. But yeah. what's important is not how difficult they are, is that the discussion happens. Okay. I understand That's that. Because like I said, a lot of times, you know, I'll be in my head as an addict and try to mull it around, you know, and um, you've cleared up a lot of things for me. And I know that... My heart will try to convince me that, oh, you can do it, you know, and be okay. But my gut tells me just, and from what you confirmed, it seems like um, just set them firm boundaries and know what I'm expecting. Correct. um, From the other person in my relationship. Correct. And have a good standard of who I want to be with. Yep. Not, not, oh, wait one second. Uh (laughs) Let me just correct that. Okay. the way you phrased it, not not a good standard of who you want to be with, a good moral standard you've set for yourself. Okay. Yeah, what your standard is for yourself. So, for, like I said, you can say my rule for me is that I'm not going to date someone that uses drugs or drinks. Mm, okay, I got now, it. Right, okay. Now, someone else might look at that and say, oh, well, you know what, you know, what if they're a social drinker, David? Or what if they just drink, you know, at New Year's or at a wedding or something? And you might say, I don't care. I don't want that around yeah. me. Or you yeah. might say, well, you know what? Maybe that was, maybe maybe I need to be more clear that what I mean is I don't want to be dating an alcoholic and someone who's dropping fifths of vodka and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be clear and then you got to just know what your standards are and have that discussion with the other person. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I understand it. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Hey, thank you very much. All right. You're very welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's all about establishing what your boundaries are and then maintaining them. Very hard, especially when it comes to your intimate relationships, okay, But what do we always say? Where do people fail the most? What brings them down the most? It's their inability to deal appropriately with their intimate relationships. Okay, so you have to, you're responsible for the boundaries that you set, the guidelines that you set for yourself and then you have to enforce them. See that's the part people kind of miss. 
they kind of it's it's like the gentleman telling me way back when you know you have high standards but no goals okay so you set your boundaries you know you state what they are but you don't enforce them and and often often it's rooted in fear okay well what's going to happen if I enforce them am I not going to be in a relationship Hello?
free. 